We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we praise you, Lord, for what you have done in our lives to bring us to this place. Every one of us that is here is here by your grace. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would teach us your word, help us to understand it better than we've known it before, drawn to the conviction that we find herein, built up in our faith. We pray for those who know not Christ as Savior and ask that you would draw them to the light that they cannot see in their own power, but to the light that you have made available in Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, our Savior, of whom we have sung. And we praise you now for the privilege to gather and to hear his teaching and pray that you would deepen us through it and challenge us in our faith. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. You picture an Olympic gymnast, a young woman competing for a gold medal. Every day of her life is dedicated to gymnastics. Even eating, sleeping, and times of relaxation are calibrated to serve her mission a gold medal. More importantly, she devotes herself to practice day after day, hour after grueling hour. She wills her body to conform to the principles of bodily motion, to the physics, to the physiology of it all. She must master these in keeping with the rules of international gym, gymnasts. Her coaches teach her ways and means by which to get her body to perform as it must perform in order to succeed. She does obviously nothing perfectly. She stumbles. She loses her balance. She over-rotates. She botches releases and steps out of bounds. But she makes every effort to integrate her athletic efforts with the principles and the methods of gymnastic success. There's a, a general parallel to the order of our lives as followers of Jesus. One of the primary goals of the teaching ministry of Eden Baptist Church is to help us order our lives by God's revealed word. Our quest as born-again believers is no earthly medal, of course, but our quest is to earn that reward, well done, good and faithful servant, when we stand before Christ. And so to that end, it is our life's calling to uphold the integrity of God's written word and to conform our lives to its principles and commands. Like the gymnast, so we as Christians do not live perfectly. We stumble morally. We step out of bounds. We fall off the beam. But as a gymnast seeks to conform her body to principles of her sport, so we as believers must order our lives to God's written word. Ever bending, ever drawing, ever relating to that word in right ways. Our proper relationship to that word is the theme of two paragraphs that we find in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, as we come here to Matthew chapter 5. In the first paragraph, we learn then that we must uphold 
the unalterable integrity of God's word in redemption history. Jesus upheld that word first by fulfilling it. We'll get to our relationship with it in just a moment, but in Jesus' relationship to it, he fulfilled it. Verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Since Jesus did not follow the Pharisees' traditions of relating to God's written word, they drew the conclusion that he did not care about that word. He was simply, he had simply come to abolish it, to move beyond it, to follow his own rules and do things his own way. What they didn't understand, of course, is that Jesus saw a major difference between the way that they followed God's word and what was really right and what he thus taught. So to set the record straight, Jesus insists, undoubtedly there's some criticism here that he is addressing, he, he addresses this matter, I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets. A common way, twofold division of the Bible, what we know to be the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. Everything contained in the Old Testament moves toward its fuller realization and its intended completion in Jesus Christ. That's the idea of fulfill here. Everything the Old Testament says moves to fuller realization and completion in the person of Jesus Christ. This means that, for instance, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about himself, the place of his birth, for instance, in Micah 5, or the circumstances surrounding his death and his burial in Isaiah 53. But it also means that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in the sense that he is the greater meeting place with God to which the tabernacle pointed. He is the sacrificial lamb of God that the entire sacrificial system was prefiguring. He is the fulfillment and completion to which the offices of prophet, priest, and king in Israel always pointed. Jesus also fulfills Old Testament law by his teaching, by showing in his instruction what God ultimately meant in the law. And so we find in the rest of this sermon and by the sinless life that he lived in perfect conformity with that law. He fulfilled it in that way as well. Jesus had come not to abolish the law. He had come to set God's written word aside. No, he had come to fulfill it. The Old Testament scriptures had integrity which he upheld as it connected to redemption history found ultimately in himself. He continues then in verse 18 on that theme where he says, For truly I say to you, in support of this statement, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Until heaven and earth pass away, a figure of speech, as long as the world stands. Nothing will fall from anything that God has said, from anything that has been written as his word. The law here I don't think is a mosaic law specifically, it includes that, but a general reference to the Hebrew Bible again. It's a remarkable statement. Verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or dot will pass from the law. 
iota, the smallest letter, and a dot. Some translations have the least stroke of the pen. The amazing statement. Look at the Hebrew alphabet here. And just noticing the letter Baith, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, compare that, notice that how that's formed, with the Hebrew Kaf. You see, it's hard from a distance to even tell the difference. There's that little extension there. Jesus said, that's not going to drop out of the law. Or to use another, two, two other letters, the Daleth and the Resh. Hard from that distance to see at all. But there's just that little extension on the top right of the Daleth that's missing on the top right of the Resh. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's a figure of speech. It's hyperbole in, in a sense that people could misspell a word as scribes write or something like that. But in the word that God has given, absolutely nothing will fail. Nothing will drop out of it. Until all is accomplished. Every divine purpose prophesied or described in the Old Testament will find fulfillment. It's a key point, Jesus' instruction here, is that he is upholding the unbreakable, unalterable integrity of Scripture. He upheld their their integral relationship also to the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. So everything that has been written has absolute integrity to lock into that redemption plan. Nothing will fall out of it. Nothing will be lost, ever. This is God speaking. This is the divine Christ speaking of the scrolls that people were reading. Now again, a copyist can make errors, and we can misinterpret what the Scriptures even say. But what God has given in His Word is inseparable from God. His speech reflects who He is. It is, in some sense, Himself. And so we do not separate God from His Word, and Jesus upholds that integrity. Not one stroke of the pen will drop. An amazing statement, particularly to opponents who are saying that you're, you're playing fast and loose with the Scriptures. You're not really following them the way that you should. And he's saying, no, nothing will pass from this law until it's all accomplished. So I think by way of application, Christian, today as we hear this, we, we think of what Jesus says as he upholds that word. Love the Old Testament Don't set it aside. It's long. It has some sections in it that aren't a whole lot of fun to work through sometimes, such as Leviticus. I was talking to some teens on Wednesday night about that. We struggle with that. But it's there for a reason, all of it. Love the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. There may be some sections, if you've never read it before, you need to skip through. But read the Old Testament Scriptures. This is what Jesus is saying about the Old Testament. We need to teach the Old Testament to our children. God in His mercy has placed many narratives there, many stories that are there that are easy to identify with and learn from. Those stories are there for a reason and they all integrate with redemption history. With all that God is doing to save His people. Do not lay aside the Old Testament. 
We praise God for the revelation of the New Testament and the New Covenant, but let us know that they are wholly integrated with one another. And that, indeed, you cannot really understand the New Testament as you should apart from the Old Testament. There are sections in the New Testament that are directly derivative from the Old Testament, but all of it rests upon it. The entire Bible is essential to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he makes this so clear to us here in verses 17 and 18. But moving to us, we must then uphold God's written word by faithfully teaching and obeying it. I think is the force of verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Negatively here, to relax, that is to loosen or to, that's not a big deal. To treat the Bible that way in any way, that person will be least in the kingdom of heaven. That is the kingdom that Jesus rules and ultimately that will express our eternal presence with him in that relationship Those who have moved around Scripture, who have treated it lightly, who have not upheld its integrity, who have not understand all of the interconnectedness to redemption history, will be seen in a lesser way. Our ultimate relationship with God is reflected in our relationship now to His Word. I don't know what else to say about it, but it says they'll be lesser in the kingdom of heaven. Positively, those who teach and do it are greater in the kingdom of heaven. There is more honor there because of the way that they honored Scripture. So the kingdom over which Jesus reigns and is ruled by by God's truth, in that kingdom there will be levels of recognition based on people supplying, first of all, accurate faithful instruction. To say, this is what God's Word says. Now, there's an interpretive skill and art And only to some degree are we held responsible for that. But I don't think he's talking here about earning a PhD in Bible interpretation so that you never make a mistake in interpretation. I don't think of it in those terms. But he's talking to pastors. He's talking to teachers in the church and saying that there is a greatness to speaking the truth of God's written word accurately interpreting it rightly as well as we know as well as we can and trying to honorably handle the text of scripture but he's teaching to he's talking to bible class teachers he's talking to small group bible study leaders and even to those who get together as we have arranged uh, in smaller groups of relationships around the word of god to be faithful to what that word says To not skirt around it, to not pretend it doesn't say what it's saying, but to be faithful as we teach it to one another that way. I think he's talking as well, certainly, to parents as they teach children in their home. Again, you don't have to be deeply schooled in interpretation of Scripture. What you need to do is read it and don't explain it away. Take it for what it says, read it to your children, and as you do that, I have no doubt that there will be some moms in heaven that have greater reward than some professors in seminaries because they taught it faithfully, straight up, to say what it really says. It has integrity. 
Not one stroke of the pen will fall from the law. Do we treat it that way or do we explain it away? Ignore it. Don't read it. The second part of it is faithful obedience to that word. It actually comes first there at the end of verse 19. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Obedience to the word of God is always the end game. That is the point of it. It's not simply packing our minds with knowledge about what God's word says, but living that word out. This is always the importance of it, where it's pointed. Now, Jesus gets uncomfortably pointed with respect to the Pharisees in verse 20. They do relax the commands of Scripture. They refuse to follow Jesus' interpretation of God's law. And they do not obey the spirit of God's law with their teaching. Verse 20, he says then in in that context, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Were there any scribes and Pharisees there, that offended them. I can pretty much guarantee that the vast majority of the rest of the people who heard it probably gasped inside. More devoted, more righteous than the Pharisees. The Pharisees gave every day of their lives to the study and application of God's word. So people, the general populace that would look at the Pharisees, say the most righteous people that I know. How can my righteousness exceed the righteousness of these deeply devout people who read God's Word daily? Many of them had it all memorized. Like the whole Old Testament, some of them. Those gifted that way, but there were many who did. How can our righteousness exceed that? Well, first, we need to understand the righteousness of the Pharisees. And from the teachings of Jesus, we can mark that out along several lines. First of all, that righteousness, quote-unquote, was marked by formal religious ritual keeping that did not come from a tender heart of love toward God. The heart was cold. The rituals were kept. Secondly, it was a hypocritical righteousness. They did not practice what they preached. They knew what God's Word said. They applied it their own way, but they didn't live it. They put heavy demands on others to obey the Word of God, but they themselves did not obey that Word. Thirdly, they pursued their righteousness for the praise of man more than the approval of God. This angered Jesus. Many times we find it in His teaching that you are doing this so that people will look at you They will see you. It's a performance to get people's attention. And number four, they added to and subtracted from God's law to fit a legalistic system of their own making that they would calibrate and massage to their own benefit. Finally, there was a prideful lack of love for others. I'm sure other things could be mentioned, but just in my list of five here, these are things that Jesus taught us about the righteousness of, of the Pharisees. What is true righteousness? It's so fascinating what Jesus is doing here. He's saying the Old Testament all pointed to me. It finds its fulfillment in me, but he's now pointing past himself, not himself ultimately, but past the moment where he's at. So he he cannot fully develop his death and resurrection. Hasn't happened yet. 
But he's pointing the Old Testament finding fulfillment in him. That fulfillment is pointing forward as he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. What does that lead you to do? You're in that crowd or you're in this crowd. And you say, I'm not going to heaven unless my righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. That makes me sweat. I'm like, wow. But no. It's not a competition with the Pharisees to do more works than they do. It leads his followers to ask the question, what is righteousness? How can I stand before a holy God? And as he begins to lay out the teaching in this sermon, it doesn't help us out by saying, oh, I've got that. It reveals to us again and again our sin. And that there really is no righteousness in us. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. And that's what Jesus, I think, is ultimately pointing us to through his ministry, through his teaching, and through the development of the New Testament He's pointing us to a Pharisee, such as Saul of Tarsus, who came to Christ and said of his Pharisaical righteousness, whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. We could use the word debit there. It was a negative to be a Pharisee. It was a negative to rely upon the law for my own salvation. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything now a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What had he lost? The notoriety. He had lost the sense in culture, in, in that society, that he was special and righteous. He lost the standing. All of that means nothing to me for the sake of knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all these things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Notice it here. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Jesus doesn't spell that out all here, for he's not yet died and risen. But as he is pointing them to his teaching, he is pointing us to understand, I do not live righteously, but there is an alien righteousness that can be given to me as a gift, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness that does not come through obedience to the law. Because these Pharisees, honestly, were just fooling themselves. And they were fooling a lot of people around them to say, by our obedience, we can earn God's favor. Jesus is saying your righteousness must be perfect. It must be complete. And you cannot find that in your own soul and performance. It can only come as a gift from God who gives a righteous standing in Jesus Christ so that it is a salvation by faith. A righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. So, In this section, in this paragraph, as we continue our series on the Word of God and look to the second paragraph in a moment, but notice here, just by way of summary, that God's written Word is unchangeable and it is absolute. It does not pass out of usefulness. 
It will stand against the test of time. It will stand against the ravages of human philosophy. It will stand against the deepest doubts of its most hostile opponents. This word will stand. Seeking to abolish God's written word is like trying to topple a massive oak tree by throwing a paper airplane at the trunk. It's a fool's errand. Further, Jesus insisted that the Bible is perfectly integrated with itself and with redemption history. So if we begin to take pieces out of it, we begin to deny parts of it, we begin to crumble the whole system. The danger of that is that we live in a day where our culture is saying, you have to cut that out. You cannot believe this part. Take this, Jesus. He works for us. Not this Jesus. That you've got to eliminate. Eden Baptist Church, may we give ourselves to upholding the integrity of God's word in redemption history. Every last word. Jesus did. And he was God. He saw no separation between the written word and his will. May each of us then labor to order our lives by it and devote ourselves to obedience to it. Above all, let us believe the one to whom the scriptures point, Jesus our Lord and Redeemer. We see secondly then, if you make your way to chapter 7, we must order our lives to God's word in righteous living. So upholding its integrity as we understand all of its relationship to redemption history, we then must order our lives to it as we seek to live righteously. Jesus calls us to this in verses 24 and 29 to 29 of chapter 7. First of all, we must wisely build our lives on the foundation of God's revealed word. We know these words well. They're simple and straightforward by way of illustration. But remember again what Jesus is saying. Verse 24 of chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Whoever hears these words of mine. That's not audibly. It's not simply comprehending what Jesus has said. But it's hearing in the sense of understanding and trusting his words as absolute truth, as eternal wisdom. It's the kind of hearing, notice verse 24, that goes with what? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. It goes with obedience. Now let's parallel this to verse 21 above. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Notice verse 23, then will I declare to them who stand before me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These were people who knew the word of God. They believed they were serving Christ and they stand before his throne and he says, I don't know who you are. Not in the sense that he can't identify them, but we have no relationship. It's those who do the Word of God. It's those who calibrate their lives to it that He receives. I never knew you. So we must know then Jesus as the Lord of life, as the final judge. 
of the living and the dead, we must demonstrate that knowledge by integrating his teaching with our lives. So, like a gymnast works to conform her body to the skills she's seeking to perform, we must conform our words, our actions, our attitudes, our ambitions to the Word of God. That Word informs all of these areas of life. Jesus continues the analogy and that man has built his house on the rock of God's word. Verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The house is my life, the storm then is any trouble that assaults my life and threatens to weaken my faith in God and my faithfulness to him. So we picture in in Israel the hills and the ravines and the flash floods would come and they'd run down these dry wadis, these little ravines, and they could very easily smash up against a house in a torrent of rain. And those surging waters hit this house, but built on the foundation, it stands. It doesn't move. And indeed, the trials of life do hit us hard. They surge against us. Betrayal, failure, shattered dreams, disease, death, loss, financial ruin, persecution. But the life that is integrated with God's word stands solid against those storms. It's founded on the rock. Not because we are so strong, but because the rock on which we stand is immovable. John Rippon's 1787 hymn caught this so well, how firm a foundation. Notice this phrase, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. That word is that foundation under our feet. Build your life on it. Calibrate your life to it. Live in active, obedient response to it, and your feet are on solid foundations. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. It's not you, the builder, it's not you, the house. It's the rock under your feet. That's it. That holds. A life lived in conscious, disciplined response to God's word is the only life that's able to endure the challenges of this world and take us on into the next to stand before Christ with joy. This is it. But Jesus warns that we must choose this life. We must consciously avoid its opposite. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. This man also hears the words of Jesus. Presumably he is the sort of person who says, Lord, Lord, before the judgment seat. 
in verse 21. I've handled the Word. I've read the Word. I've gone to church. I've, 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 I've done things in your name. But his life is calibrated to the shifting sands of the spirit of the age and the lusts of the flesh. It's not ordered to God's written word because there's not been a transformation of heart that says, my life is yours. That takes up its cross and follows Christ and stands then on the solid rock of his word. This is standing on self. Where does that life lead? As verse 27 says, the storms come, the trials of life come, and that house falls. It cannot stand. So let me address here um, a few of you precisely and specifically. Specifically those of you who are yet uncommitted to Christ the Savior. Maybe you're growing up in a home and your parents bring you to this church and that's that. It's not really your commitment, not really your faith at this point. It's just the family faith. Or maybe you've come in and are visiting with us today and you're contemplating Jesus, Christianity, salvation. Maybe you don't even know why you're here entirely, but you've come to hear what's happening among us. Or maybe you've been around a long time and even joined the church but you really honestly are uncertain about following Christ. I, I want to make graciously and clearly to say as, as clearly as possible, you have the freedom to dismiss what Jesus is saying here. You have the moral freedom to calibrate your life to the desires of the flesh, to the spirit of the world, to live by what seems right in your own eyes, to live like you feel like living. You can choose that way of life. But do not dismiss this moment, February 28th, 2021. Jesus is in a sense looking you in the eye and he is saying, your life will collapse. A storm will assault your life and you'll crumble under its power. And the ultimate storm will come before the judgment seat of Christ. And the last thing in the universe you're going to want to hear on that day is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you whose life was not oriented to hearing and obeying my saving word. It's certainly a bold and authoritative claim. And we live in a world outside that's pressing us to throw such thinking away, such narrow thinking. But Jesus is not backing down. He is saying, follow me as Lord. Orient your life to obeying my teaching or you are eternally ruined. This is the Jesus so many Christians want to pretend never existed. But this is the Jesus who says there is only one way to joy, one way to God, one way to eternal reward in His presence, and I alone am that way. And not one stroke of the pen will fall.
the integrity of Jesus' claim will be seen throughout all eternity. Have you placed your trust in Christ as Savior? Are you actively ordering your life to conform to the truth of God's Word and obedience to that truth in your life? It is not enough to say, I know what Jesus did. I know that He is the Savior. I understand the truth. We must come to the place where His Word is our life. That is the evidence of genuine faith. That is the evidence that we will stand before Him in eternity and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, I never knew you. The crowds were rightly astonished by what Jesus was saying. Well, what was he saying? What does it look like? What does that life look like? We, we can't take much time to consider it by way of application and specificity, but just looking at his sermon itself and just highlighting a few things, what it looks like to have a life that's calibrated to the Word of God, one is humility. Verse 3. Another is that you will let your light shine in a fallen world. You will speak out for Christ to those who do not know Him, verse 16. It means to turn away from sexual temptation, verses 28 through 30. It means to work for for your marriage, not to give up on it, verse 32. It means not to retaliate against those who harm you, to consciously say, God does not give me that freedom. In fact, it calls us to love our enemies, verse 44. To calibrate my life to God's Word means I will not stockpile wealth, but invest it in God's kingdom work, 6, 19-24. It means that I will not worry about finances, chapter 6, 25 and following. It means that I will do unto others as I would have them do to me, 7, 12. It means that I will trust Christ as my Savior, chapter 7 and verse 13. And on it goes. It's calibrating our life to be responsive to what God's Word says. We find then thirdly that we must find hope in the authoritative integrity of Jesus' teaching. The crowds were astonished. They'd never heard teaching like this before. Verse 28, when Jesus finished these things, these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Note that their astonishment is linked to the authority with with which Christ spoke. Obey my teaching and you are wise. Disregard my teaching and you are a moral fool. Your life is right now falling apart. And it will end in eternal judgment. It was dawning on some of them, as John Stott puts it, that Jesus believed Quote, all the lines of the Old Testament witness converged on himself. He did not think of himself as another prophet or even as the greatest of prophets, but rather as the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus' lordship is in stark evidence here. He didn't teach as the scribes taught. The task of the Jewish scribe was to tell people what the law said, And it was to tell people what other rabbis said the law said and how those rabbis compared with other rabbis and who had this position and that position. They were lifelong students and interpreters of Scripture. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing with comparing notes with other teachers for they did not have the authority of God ultimately. 
But the task was always to preserve, to quote, to compare notes. Unlike those prophets. You know what Jesus never did? He was a prophet. But that phrase the prophets use all the time, thus says the Lord. It introduced so many of their proclamations, thus says the Lord. Jesus didn't say that. He said, truly, truly, I say to you. Rather than teach the crowd what this rabbi said and what that rabbi believed, he spoke as God. He didn't weigh out eight different views debating them. He cut his own path. This is what you have heard, but I say to you. This is how the Pharisees have interpreted the Scriptures because they have no heart for God. But this is the truth. This is how that law looks. He taught with authority. And the reason is that the integrity of the written word of God that pointed to Jesus is now centralized in the word made flesh. The word in whom all the scriptures find their fulfillment, find their yes and amen. So what do you think would happen to an Olympic gymnast? She realizes she's more athletic than almost anybody she's ever met. She's really developed some fame because of her sport and what she's able to do. It So she starts to say, I'm going to enjoy this fame. And she starts staying out every night in wild parties with her friends. She starts eating whatever she wants to eat. She misses practice or comes in late. She's stubborn toward the coaches. I know what to do. You don't know anything more than I. I know how my body's supposed to work. I know how to get this done. Just stay out of my face. What's going to happen? She's going nowhere. You've never heard of a gold medal gymnast who had that attitude and that experience. And you never will. Her life is not calibrated any longer to the principles of the bodily motion, the physics and the physiology of a high-level performance like that. Our lives as followers of Christ can go in that same direction, or I should say at least in a profession of faith in Christ. Our lives can go in that direction. Listening to the flesh, living as seems right in our own eyes, stubborn in our resistance to God's word, stubborn in our resistance to those who give godly counsel. That's a life on the sand. When the storms of life come, they are going to knock you over. Our goal then is to calibrate our life to the authoritative word of God, to the external authoritative word, to seek in the light of that word our life and our hope. Our goal is to walk in fellowship with the risen Christ, clothed in his righteousness, not in our performance, but clothed in his righteousness, responding with joy of heart as we learn the ways of the abundant life he came to give us calibrating our life to that word so that we stand someday before the Lord and do not hear, I never knew you, but hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord, for you heard my word and you lived it. Father, give us grace to this end. It's not in us. It's the rock under our feet. 
I pray that we'd see it. I pray that we'd live it. I pray, Lord, with earnestness for those separated from Christ and pray that they would choose life. That you would open their eyes to see the joy that is in you alone and that your word is solid bedrock truth. Aid us, Lord, as we seek to serve as light in this world and proclaim this saving grace. And as it's been proclaimed here in this congregation, draw to yourself those who are yet separated from you. For those of us who know this word, for those of us who love it, may we recognize every day that we must come back to practice. That every day of our lives we must confess where we fail, where we disobey that word, and every day rejoice to conform our lives to it. We know that nothing that we've ever done by way of obedience has been a disappointment. All of our shame and sorrow and disappointment is linked to those places where we disobeyed your word. We find pleasure in sin for a season. Lord, I pray that when the storms of life come, and even in the calm weather, that we would find ourselves solid on the rock of your revealed truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.